You are listening to Race Capital on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio with me, Kalia Harris. And today we're going to listen in on a press conference that was put on by the Virginia Student Power Network this past Monday regarding the statewide campus reopenings that have become a public health crisis. Since the outbreak of the novel coronavirus known as COVID-19 back in March, many students, faculty, staff, and community members have been speaking out and demanding equitable treatment and response from public institutions regarding this pandemic. Instead, what has happened is the exact opposite. Many colleges and universities closed down campuses after spring break this past March and switched to hybrid or completely virtual classes, aka Zoom University, refusing to give back tuition or attendance fees to students despite the fact that many of them didn't receive the services or the instruction that they paid for. As cases continue to skyrocket throughout the spring and summer, many universities have returned this fall in some form of a hybrid or in-person instruction. This has resulted in the mass influx of students into communities where the institutions are located and new hotspots for the COVID-19 virus. All of this is due to the reckless decisions made by University Board of Visitors, many of whom sit on boards or are otherwise entangled with large corporate interests who are hungry for tuition dollars, no matter what the cost, even if that cost is human life. According to the New York Times COVID tracker, Harrisonburg, Virginia, where James Madison University is located, and Radford, Virginia, where Radford University is located, are two of the newer emerging hotspots in the country with high numbers of recent cases per resident. The quantitative data is showing that bringing students back to campus is raising infection rates in these so-called college towns and cities, so much so that we are ranking high nationally. And this should really alarm everyone because the longer that these students are on campus, the more that these rates are going to continue to climb. The numbers certainly paint the picture of a grim reality today on campuses throughout the nation. The pandemic is only getting worse as countless students faculty members, workers, and community members are put at risk of contracting this potentially deadly virus as face-to-face instruction continues. What the numbers will never be able to articulate are the experiences of these students who are navigating their higher education experience amid a pandemic while the schools just act like everything is normal particularly black and brown students, many of whom are from working class families or mixed economic backgrounds, and many of whom are the first from their families to navigate this education process. So today we will hear some of these stories. Let's listen in to the press conference. Today, we did want to take some time to center the student stories. So we'll kick it off by giving you a little bit of overview as to why we're all here and give you just some history of the campaigns and the work that have been done on behalf of the students around the reopening and handling of COVID-19 on campuses. So we'll do the historical context and then we'll hear straight from the youth. So we'll talk to students from campuses all over Virginia and hear their stories about what's going on on their campuses right now. So to get started with some historical context, Ibi, do you just want to tell us like how, how did we get to a 10 a.m. press conference with students all over the state? 
Yeah, I think it's really important to just name again that, you know, this is a really urgent public health crisis. We're nearing over 2,000 cases on college campuses statewide. And, and, you know, I don't think this came as a surprise to anyone, right? Like we know that colleges, college campuses, dorm life would all be incubators, you know, frankly, like super spreader locations for the COVID-19 virus. Us as young people are also really cognizant of the fact that, especially for campuses and places like where I live in Charlottesville, you know, UVA, it's a college town. So when the UVA students come back, that has a ripple effect on the outer community, right? Especially our workers, our primarily black and brown service workers at UVA, the black and brown community in Charlottesville, we know those are the folks who are disproportionately impacted when universities make this decision to come back and reconvene for face-to-face instruction. And UVA, you know, they've already set aside 1,500 quarantine beds, which, you know, suggests like, yeah, we'll have 1,500 concurrent cases of COVID, which is really disturbing that, you know, they're willing to make that that calculation to bring folks back on campus. And so we'll have our students talk about some of the immediate sort of egregious things that have happened, like non-FDA approved test kits, students getting sent to isolation dorms who haven't even tested positive. Like there's a whole host of things that have gone wrong. And of course, James Madison University had to ask students to back up and go back home, right? But all of that for us as in VSBN, we really see that as these are just the symptoms of the underlying disease of the corporatization and the attrition of our universities as public goods, right? So our universities, they're not prioritizing the lives of students, workers, faculty, communities. They're balancing their budget on the backs of students and their families. Universities made that calculation to bring folks back so that that tuition revenue stream would be protected. Even though we've got schools, again, I'll just keep calling out UVA since I'm, I'm a UVA alum and I live in Charlottesville still. They've got a $9 billion endowment and another strategic investment fund. These are rainy day funds. It's time to actually use this wealth that they've hoarded and actually help folks out and not continue bringing folks back for face-to-face instruction when it isn't necessary. So especially as young people and as students, we also want to emphasize the fact that in universities choosing to reopen, they have shifted the public health burden from their institutions onto individuals, right? So it's it's up to the individual student to wear a mask and stay socially distant and regulate their own behavior. So universities are encouraging students to surveil each other. We're seeing again, like this public health burden is just on the individual and the institutions have completely absolved themselves of any responsibility for their decision to return back. So yeah, just wanted to give some of that And also want to name too that like students have been fighting back and workers and faculty, community members, ever since the pandemic really kicked off in March, university students especially want to shout out the UVA uh, Young Democratic Socialists of America, the uh, VCU Student Power. We've got all of these student groups who have been consistently and clearly speaking out against their university reopening plans 
the George Mason American Association of University Professors exposing the Calico test kits. So anyway, I just want to also, you know, celebrate the fact that we've got so many voices who have been speaking up against this for, for the past few months. And yeah, we'll go ahead and kick it over to the students to actually tell their stories of what they've been going through and what needs to happen. Yes, thank you, Ibby, for running it down the way that it really is, right? It's been going on since universities closed in March before spring break or right around. So thank you for, for putting it into that context that it's not just this semester, but that it's been going on for quite a while, the, the resistance to creating this moment that students told their universities that this was going to happen. <laughs> and here we are, right? Right where we thought we'd be. So to hear from the students, I'm gonna just get started and run down our list. Taylor Maloney from Virginia Commonwealth University. Do you mind sharing your story with us and letting us know why you're here? Yeah, so obviously there's like a bunch of really cool folks who go to VCU who are doing a lot of the work. And I just want to speak to them as well as my own experiences. In general, like I feel like VCU is kind of in a unique situation because unlike most of the Virginia colleges, especially the public institutions, it's kind of integrated into the city in a different kind of way where like, you know, we're pretty close to the majority black and brown populations of Richmond. And I mean, obviously some of the other like middle-class suburbs and like white suburbs, but all that to say that like VCU opening meant, okay, well, we're gonna tell the community that you're gonna have to deal with all these new incoming first-year students who have never left their parents' house and were forced into isolation all summer, okay, come to college and have a great time. To do that was to basically say, like, we know what these students are going to do, we know how they're going to act, but we're going to cover our bases and put our ducks in a row by, you know, putting hand sanitizer in the student commons or fewer in-person classes, but I mean, all in all, it was a really irresponsible choice at VCU that's obviously driven by money. Um, you know, they always tell us, okay, well, we, could, we couldn't not have this semester because how are we going to pay our workers when they have the money to pay the workers anyways? Maybe stop some of these development projects that they're doing in this million, multi-million dollar engineering school. You know, there's tons of works projects that are happening in Richmond you know, that construction workers could contribute to besides the VC ones. So they definitely could have paid the workers off this semester and we didn't have to have this, you know, on-campus disaster that we do now. I will say that our cases have been dropping, but I don't take that as proof that we should stay on campus because again, we're dealing with COVID-19. We're not talking about what COVID-20 is going to look like. So, you know, the more comfortable we get with the idea of staying on campus, okay, this is fine the less prepared we're going to be for the next wave of COVID that is inevitably going to hit and hit Richmond, hit the black and brown communities. Um, and it's just not being talked about, but I think that's very intentional because like, I don't like to see uh, our administration as, you know, ignorant or unaware. They know what's happening. They know who's at risk and they're willing to put those people at risk for the sake of profit for the semester, but not only do they profit via uh, tuition, they profit from parking, athletic events, they profit from those tickets for those athletic events, which they're still continuing. 
They profit from the VCU health facilities. They profit from properties that they're owning and buying up. So like there's other reasons that they're not closing down campus other than just, okay, we want tuition money. Thank you so much. And next we will hear from Cabriti from the College of William and Mary. Oh, thank you, thank you, uh, Kalia. So yeah, my name is Cabriti, and I'm William and Mary Senior. Um, I guess what I wanted to share is continue on what Ibi was talking about in the context of the College of William and Mary, where I go to school, and how big pictures view from a very like myopic lens at William and Mary. I think one of the things that we are seeing of like American individualism that it's all about you, take care of yourself, you do this, you do that, responsibility on you. It forget the community uh, that <laughs> it's a community work that needs to happen to take care of each other and not, yeah, you wear the mask, but, but it's what we are seeing, especially at Women Mary, we saw students getting blamed for workers being followed. So we get the Dean emailing students like saying, yeah, it's literally your fault that we're kicking these workers out because you choose not to listen, but no, it's your decisions that are leading to these workers being kicked out. And so we're seeing this short-sighted of like American individualism within our own college campuses where we expect, we, we forget that care work is community work and not an individual responsibility. And so there's that, especially when we're proliferation of like neoliberalism where the school is basically not taking responsibility of looking into the student's care, like health, where they leveraging the testing to like corporate, especially like corporate companies who don't have like FDA approval. We don't know what's going to happen with our information and all of that. So we don't know what's going to happen with like our, I don't know what testing that like the purpose for research. I think that's what Calico said, but who's going to benefit from that research? Is it the students going to get back like the, the investment that they are putting on? How much money has the school spent on like providing these corporations with the amount of testing? And so there's all of that that we are seeing and we don't know what's going to happen with our test results. And now they are switching up. Like now they're going to do the nasal testing because the mouth swab, I don't know what happened with that. But the school health center is not taking the responsibility to test students and all of that, like actually investing, putting back on the money on the students. We're also seeing like, especially with our schools, like there are some schools in Virginia who have the privilege to test every single student, right? Before they return and others do not. And so we've heard like during our last talk that some schools didn't even have a chance to test every single student. And what does that say? about state of education within the Commonwealth and who do we care about? And when not every single student, worker, faculty is tested before they come back on campus. And yeah, that's just some of the things that we're seeing. So like the 5% sample is not enough that William and Mary is doing that random sample, like 5% has to be increased, not a great sample to like account for every single person who's back and so on. So this is just a little bit of thing, but that I'm seeing. I just wanted to ask one follow-up. At William & Mary, they've added more academic workload for the students, right? 
yes, they have. <laughs> uh, I guess for my, all my classes is that they have, I guess because school is ending early in November 20 something, the week of Thanksgiving, if I might be wrong by that, but I think that's for sure. So they have had three more classes on top of that, if I'm not wrong. And so that just was increasing. <laughs> you see, like, that's like the whole burden of like, yeah, it's your responsibility to all this work now. But for the work for the professors and, and so on. Thank you for sharing. And next, we will hear from Sarandon from the University of Virginia, UVA. Thank you, Kalia. Um, hey, y'all. My name's Sarandon. And I just want to talk a little bit about like what I've seen at UVA um, the past like six months. Kalia and Ibi mentioned earlier this has been going on for six months. So yeah, the past six months has been filled with fusion, worry, fear for university students and workers and Seville members. From some students being told at the very last minute that their dorm rooms would be used for quarantine isolation housing. And they were given like 24 hours to find like new housing arrangements to the university not giving any workers any hazard pay this coming semester. You know, I can't help but feel very disappointed, frankly, in the University of Virginia, you know, UVA and institutions like UVA are supposed to be the home of like innovation, drive, excellence. Like all three of these themes have been lacking from the university and their response to COVID-19. And I think we're kind of seeing also something that not only in Virginia schools, not only at UVA, but across the country, like, Universities like UVA have been purposely setting this narrative that all the responsibility and blame is to be put onto students. Like they've recently, UVA has been running this campaign as wear a mask, do your part, we can all stay safe. Yes, some students have been immensely irresponsible. We have to acknowledge the power and influence our institutions have, right? UVA decided in spite of seeing numerous of its peers institutions reopening plans this fall, to bring back over 4,000 students to dorms, possibly exposing many workers and RA members to sickness, or, you know, even in the case that all 4,000 of these students have to pack up and go home, that means that possibly thousands of communities and family members could be exposed to COVID-19 in the event that UVA students that live in dorms are sent back. And again, also in spite of many pleas from students, workers, Charlottesville community members, including Charlottesville Human Rights Commission, not to bring back students and not to have in-person classes. UVA has decided to bring back students onto grounds. UVA has had numerous chances along the way to do the right thing, and they haven't. Again, just very disappointing. One thing that I think is really kind of also ironic during this time is that, especially after the George Floyd um, lynching and in the Black Lives Matter protests, in response to George Floyd, UVA has made these claims that they're really committed to racial equity and, you know, addressing racism and the slavery that happened on our campus. For anyone that doesn't know, again, Thomas Jefferson was our founder. He owned slaves. This is a slave plantation that UVA was founded on. And, you know, the UVA has been saying like, oh, we're really committed to addressing these inequalities caused by racism and slavery and eugenics all have a history at UVA. The fact that we have seen during this pandemic that things like housing security, healthcare, policing, jobs proportionally affected Black communities and Black people, I think it's kind of ironic that UVA says they're committed to racial equity. UVA has now created this environment that a student, a worker, a community member, like at any moment could be exposed to COVID, could get sick because of COVID, be laid off, furloughed. 
at any given moment if they decide to send home students, which again will no doubt disproportionately affect the black and brown workers and students on our grounds. One thing I do want to take a moment to talk about is like all the amazing activists and organizers that we have seen during this time. Groups like Students for Equitable COVID Response, Young Democratic Socialists of America, United Campus Workers, which is a new union on campus, Virginia Student Power Network, of course, UVA Residential Advisors, and many other like individuals and organizers during this time have been really outspoken about UVA's just horrible planning. And I just want to take a moment to like kind of recognize them and all the really like hard work. Even like a couple of weeks ago, the organization that I'm involved in, YDSA, at UVA held a die-in protest demanding no in-person classes and for the university to give students an opt-out policy if they do choose to stay into dorms because frankly, UVA dorms, it's the safest place for a lot of students. And we still haven't heard back from university on those demands. Kind of finally, I do want to say like, this is very personal for me. I'm from the city of Richmond, born and raised in Highland Park. I'm scared every day for like, I'm afraid of exposing my family. I'm like afraid if VCU's poor planning, it sounds like as well. I'm scared for my family in Richmond. I'm scared to like, you know, bring it back from Charlottesville. We've all seen what happens when these very large institutions, right? Like do not do their part during public health crises. Like, you know, I've seen people get very sick and die because they didn't have adequate health care or because big institutions didn't do their part. You know, when I was younger, I saw someone I loved very dearly die from HIV complications. You know, this is really serious. This is a lot of people, like, this isn't over yet. A lot of people could still get very sick and die. You know, I think it's just time for these massive institutions to do the right thing. Thank you so much for sharing. And next, we'll speak to Darshni from George Mason University, my alma mater. Hi. Um, So my name is Darshni. I'm a junior and a student worker at George Mason University. I think many within Virginia, including our president, have praised George Mason for a lack of COVID cases. There's this quickness to draw comparison between the Virginia universities. And I think that's like a short-sightedness of an administration that is overly eager to bring students back to campus for a number of people, including, but not limited to, student workers, dining hall and custodial staff. The new regulations have meant far more work for far less pay and all the more risk for, you know, their families, for students, and for themselves. I think in a time where essential workers are finally being recognized for what they are essential, Mason has just refused to provide proper accommodations for either virtual schooling, but also for on-campus um, employees. For me, it's, it's meant that, like, my housing's been taken away, that my paycheck has been cut more than half, which is, like, important, right? Like, especially in this time of economic uncertainty, it's really difficult to see some of the things that we were promised are like just being taken away from us. And so for most kids who work in housing and res life, I'm essentially homeless without school subsidized housing. Like most students working for housing and res life, like there is like a reason we're doing this work. And during COVID, what that's meant is that we get a very lowly stipend that we had 24 hours to figure out whether or not we could afford to live in apartments that were supposed to be promised to us, which has been really difficult, right? During the initial COVID response, there was a lack of support for students on campus that needed help. And there still is very much a lack of response for students that need alternative housing arrangements. For international students, it's been 
awful. Mason has a very large international student population and their housing has become like the COVID incubation center or whatever. And I don't know, I, I think that's really awful. As many have touched on, these lack of measures include things like denying people hazard pay, um, a lack of additional training, not having proper access to PPE gear, not providing adequate sanitizing tools. I recently had to go on campus to get one of my textbooks and it was so hard to find even like hand sanitizer anywhere, which is like a simple thing that they could have done to at least like pretend like they cared about students. The effort to reopen I think is stifled by a lack of critical thoughts for students needs both academically and socially. And there's just like such a clear lack of regard for those students living on campus. Obviously this, as I kind of touched on before, this is a difficult time period for a lot of people economically. And we started the semester with a tuition raise. So having that leading into poor strategy to deal with COVID, it's obviously so clear to me that the university has decided that students' lives are, are worth the tuition revenue as mentioned before. So with cutting corners on questionable initial testing using a non-FDA approved vendor has led to some pretty questionable test results, i.e. no one knows if that initial at-home testing was accurate, to current testing on campus happening sparsely, with choosing less than a tenth of the population to voluntarily test, i.e. you miss your appointment, it, you don't get tested. So we really don't know what percentage of the population is being tested. Um, there's no defensive testing front against the virus. Obviously, without an aggressive effort to test, identify, and isolate new cases, Mason will inevitably lead to a COVID-19 rebound. And while I understand the decision of this sort weighs greatly on any institution, there's, again, a clear lack of foresight and thought here. The decision not to make school entirely virtual in spite of creating very difficult decisions for students who have to take certain classes in person in order to graduate or not responding in a timely manner to accusations of these faulty testing kits or encouraging RAs to promote off-campus in-person events and mandating having them, or simply not being transparent with test results with students and the community, there's a variety of failures evident on George Mason's part. And with our new president taking his first days in office, I'm sure it's a chaotic time, but I think this will cement his legacy as another person in George Mason that refuses to listen to students and their needs and I think it's clear that if reopening truly was a priority, they would have made it a priority. While it's commendable that there have only been 22 recorded outbreaks on campus, it's not due to strategic steps taken by the administration. It's like in spite of it. Yes, thank you for sharing. As a two-time Mason alum, I'm not surprised at all to hear this, but thank you for laying it out for us. Next, we will hear from Sydney from the College of William & Mary. Hey y'all, um, my name's Sydney. I'm a senior at William & Mary and I'm just gonna like provide a little more context like Ibi and Kalia gave us earlier, specifically about William & Mary and then speak about what students have been trying to ask for that hasn't really been listened to. Ibi said earlier in March, William & Mary's response was not very considerate. This is not keeping people safe. They kicked students out of campus housing with only a week's notice. Dining staff were furloughed without acknowledgement or support from the administration and maintenance and custodial staff worked without hazard pay or paid sick leave. It was not until work done by students and the workers union was done to actually keep these people safe as much as we're able to, right? And like, it shouldn't have been on us in the first place. But since then, like the administration has really continued to be obtuse and secretive about 
their decision-making process and their preparedness for reopening campus. So like on the first day of classes, students released a petition demanding stronger protections for students and workers given their decision to reopen campus. And so this included regular accessible and free testing for all students and staff, zero use or involvement of police to enforce social distancing protocols, hazard pay for all employees, including like contracted dining staff, um, and just like straight up transparency regarding their plan in case of an outbreak. Um, but instead, the, uh, the admin has responded by continuing to use Calico, a testing company that did not have FDA approved diagnostic tests as Mason and VCU have been doing. They've actually increased the police presence on campus and evicted students for violating COVID guidelines. And so that means like they lose their campus housing, first strike, they're out. And they've also recommended staff who are unable to work to take a voluntary furlough at this time. And so you have to keep in mind that like they failed to acknowledge the fact that dining staff were even furloughed. They won't admit that. And they're now telling staff who don't feel safe to work also take a, a further furlough, right? And then lastly, they're threatening, burdening, and blaming students. And like Kibby said earlier, they've gone as far to say like, individual students will be the cause of shutting down the campus this semester and also be the reason employees are furloughed or lose their jobs. And so with this petition, we sent it off to administration and we were granted a meeting with the Dean of Arts and Sciences, Dean Maria Donahue Vileka. And so rather than that, being me that meeting being an opportunity for us to just get transparency, get some answers, it was really turned around on us for, for her to get our ideas, right? And so that really speaks to, to the roundhouse they put students in of just, oh, we're gonna work with you. We're gonna try and meet these demands, but it's really just to buy time and like to absolve themselves of any responsibility. And really that meeting confirmed to us, the school does not see this as an urgent crisis. And rather they're like placing the health and lives of students, faculty and staff in danger by reopening campus all in the name of financial well-being, right, for the institution. And so really what the administration hasn't done is accept the fact that they created this reality of bringing students back and therefore they should be the ones responsible for protecting students and workers during this time. But it's clear that by, by saying like, oh, we'll, meet, we'll continue to meet with you, we'll do this, we'll do that. And like, it's the same with everything happening with Black Lives Matter. There's like a working group to rename buildings, but like those demands have existed for years and for you to just suddenly decide, oh, oh, we'll do it now. But if nothing's gonna happen in the next year and I graduate, who's gonna continue to put that pressure? And so with COVID, it's clear that the administration is really prioritizing profits over, over its people. And so it's, I guess it's, it's like really, really hard. And so what students are hoping for is like a public facing meeting with President Rowe Provost Agoras, a chief Cheeseboro, so that students can actually get their concerns and questions answered adequately. Because so far, it's been these pre-filmed, pre-planned town hall meetings for, for questions to be answered. But we know those are scripted. We know you're just giving us um, surface level answers and like nothing's actually being done. Yes, and if for our media folks at this point, if you don't see a pattern, right, of what's going on, it's very alarming. Um, and as a staff member, it's been alarming to hear it from all of the students in their different iterations. Uh, so I know that this can be an experience that's like, whoa, um, but I hope that y'all are really taking in what the students are sharing. Um, and so the last, the last speaker that we have is from Virginia Tech and um, Southwest Virginia. So we'll have Brian tell us what's going on at Tech. Hi, everyone. Um, 
Brian here, he, him from Tech Senior. Um, so just to keep going with uh, the pattern that Kalia touched on and uh, what Ivy was talking about earlier, um, I wanted to start with uh, our president's address to the community uh, when we were about to start school again. Keep in mind, this is 25,000 kids from all across the states who are coming to one small town in Southwest Virginia. So very high tension about whether or not we're actually going to be, you know, remote or what level we're going to be. But uh, Tim Sands, our president, sort of doubled down on both of these things, which is the greed from the administration, as well as sort of like pushing the uh, responsibility onto the student. And this is seen in quotes like, he says, considering restrictions on our endowment, which is $1.3 billion, by the way, and cash reserves, a remote fall would inevitably result in the loss of employment for many of our valued employees. Executive salary reductions, furloughs, and other measures would not be sufficient to cover the gap. But in the same breath, he also says our research enterprise would be impacted. And it's no secret to the people on campus that the research enterprise is really the, the main thing that, that the administration really cares about. That's their, that's their biggest you know, source of cash flow. On top of this, he pushes it on the students. He says resident halls, classrooms are, are not going to be a significant factor in the spread of COVID-19. He says, we believe we have mitigated the risk to manageable levels and our biggest risks are likely to result from behaviors individuals can control. So just blatantly putting it onto the students. They sort of feign this security that everything is going to be fine given what they've done. But we see that like their plan has dissolved. They've backed out on promises. Firstly, in this wave of building infrastructure to deal with the, the pandemic, they raised prices on parking passes, which makes it harder for kids to get to class. And they would promise that as many classes as possible would be remote. And yet I, I know every single student that I know has at least one in-person class that just increases traffic from off campus into campus and makes campus a, a hotspot. Uh, on top of this, they, they implemented new fees for, for counseling, a $20 copay for therapy appointments on campus. And on top of this, they're making testing pretty unavailable to off-campus students. I have a friend who is uh, impacted by all of this. They, they you know, attend therapy regularly at the campus and now have to pay a copay. And they're off campus and they have to give a valid reason to be tested on campus, which is pretty much the only source of testing in the area, right? We do testing through our health center and for off-campus students, which is a very large majority of the student populace, you need to present an, a valid reason to be tested. And there's no metric for what the valid reason can be. It's just, you have to give some sort of reason to be, to be tested, which is pretty outrageous, I would say. Furthermore, I live off campus and I have a very dear friend and roommate who is at high risk for COVID-19. And she has to go to campus a lot of times during the week. She can't do her classes remotely. She's, a, she's an art student and so she has to go into studio. And that sort of lack of foresight is weighing really heavily on the student population, especially for off-campus students who don't have access to testing. They don't have access to the centralized resources on campus without creating more traffic to campus. Um, and furthermore, bigger things have happened, like 
at first the the quarantine hall was a, a hall called New Hall West, and recently they had to evacuate another residence hall called called East Eggleton Eggleston to to uh, make more quarantine housing. But all of the students who live there are going to go to different dorms with. I mean, there's already restrictions on housing because of how many students tech has, right? And there's no space for these people. So they're sort of delaying the problem and pretty much making it worse. On top of this, they have no, there's an easily falsifiable app survey and that's really the only sort of accountability they're doing in terms of like testing uh, to sort of check in with the student population for like what, how they're doing. And there's been a whole list of horror stories that folks being moved around to quarantine housing, folks being put into quarantine housing with people who are positive when they haven't tested positive yet. It's, it's, it's a bad system. It's really bad. The, the backlash from students, the, uh, the, the sort of organizing comes from, I, I want to I uplift YDSA, like our YDSA chapter, Young Democratic Socialists. They've compiled a list of demands that is based off of the, the list of demands from UVA's chapter, and they're pushing for a tuition freeze until 2023, as well as uh, everyone who has um, in-person classes should get free parking, which is easily done at Tech's campus. It's a big campus. Um, an expansion of the counseling services so that, you know, these fees don't have to be, be implemented and the, the counseling is actually reliable during a pandemic. Um, online education resources for low-income students um, and hazard pay for all campus workers. So that is, um, that's what's going on at Tech. <laughs> wow. Just wow. Thank you, Brian, for sharing. And lastly, Ibi is going to share anonymous statement from a student. Yeah, and I'll just note that this student didn't feel comfortable speaking under their name. So that's another thing we didn't touch on, maybe if anyone wants to ask questions about that. But yeah, the criminalization of student activists has also been ramping up. Okay, so here's the statement. I'm a sophomore at George Mason University. I chose Mason because this school prides itself on being diverse, inclusive, and supportive of various student needs. However, the actions of the administration throughout the pandemic have been extremely hypocritical, disappointing, and discouraging. We now know that the Calico kits initially used to test for COVID-19 were not approved by the FDA for home administration. This means that the test results, which allowed thousands of students and staff members to return to campus, may have been invalid and unreliable. Although the university has since claimed to have changed its testing methods and recruited nursing students to administer the tests, the fact that so many people were brought back to campus with a false sense of safety horrifies me. Furthermore, an anonymous custodial worker on campus professed that their employer refused to spend extra money to provide the sanitation staff with proper cleaning equipment. They were even told to use hand soap to clean bathroom areas. This is terrifying. As a student who was forced to be on campus this semester in order to take a class from a major, I was promised clean living conditions. Instead, the administration has written off their decisions with the sentiment that they did everything they could. I wish they showed more consideration and care for the human beings that are directly impacted by their careless choices. I should not have to worry constantly about the safety of myself, my peers, and the greater community that Mason employs and interacts with. 
The pandemic has created a lot of stress and uncertainty, but what I do know for sure is that GMU has not done everything that they could do. They need to do better. We deserve better. Yes, and what a wonderful way to close out the student testimonies. Thank you all to the students that came and shared your stories. Like Ibby said, it's not easy. The universities don't want bad press or even the realities to get out. So thank you for your courage and bravery to share your narratives of what's going on. And we wanted to open it up to, to the press. So if anyone has any questions that they'd like to ask students or staff, feel free now is the time to kind of open up the space. Hi everybody, I would love to ask a question. Uh, my name is Ethan. I'm the editor-in-chief at the Flat Hat, which is William & Mary's student newspaper, he, his pronouns. Um, I would love to hear more about what you guys perceive as the criminalization of student activists. I think you might have just mentioned that, Ibby, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that if you wanted to go in more detail. Yeah, totally. I, I, and I think, Sarandon, if you want to talk about the actions that y'all have held at UVA, I can speak specifically about VCU and Kalia just jump in here. But VCU students, when they've planned actions and when they've planned rallies around, you know, calling on the university to close for the semester, that is when the university has enforced their COVID gathering limit. They don't, they don't enforce the gathering limit on parties or other gatherings or any other like social things, but they will enforce it when students are hosting socially distanced rallies. So that's one like really clear and tangible example of how they are, you know, sort of picking and choosing, right, when to enforce the regulations. Sarandon, Kalia, or Taylor, do y'all want to chime in? Um, I would just say that, like, one thing that I thought was interesting right before um, YDSA, we held our die-in event on the lawn, which again, which was very socially distanced, um, everyone was wearing masks. I had a dean double email me I just want you to know these are the rules for protesting. Again, the only time we a dean has interacted with us through our whole process. And I thought that was just really interesting. It's like, okay, so now you notice. But yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, um, I can add after specifically with VCU that after our sit-in happened, a number of us, including myself, got academic charges. So with the university, I got four different student charges related to things that I literally had no control over or no say in and also was not kept in the loop with what administration was telling people. So some of those are under threat of like interim suspension, censure, like censure, and like other things that are like really serious could show up on my record as I'm applying for grad school and stuff, simply participating in a, a sit-in on campus, quote unquote, like free speech zone. So... And, and another thing about VCU and maybe make sure I'm getting this right, but they've also been monitoring or surveilling students who attend protests related to the uprising. Is that correct? That is correct, for sure. Um, and there's some collaboration between the local and uh, campus police on that as well. So yeah, I would say, and this is something that even as a student back way back when, right, like the criminalization of activists is something that universities use to, to quell our dissent. So when we have students that are striking and talking about their discontent with the way that the university is handling it, that has been criminalized completely to the point where we do have students that have 
charges, right? It sounds like the judicial system. Uh, they have charges that they're facing with their university for speaking up about that. And then we also have, you know, here in Richmond, there was a infamous news story, right? That went out of this white student that said, I think it's going to be almost impossible for any college or university in America to protect all their students at all times. He admits parties are already happening on campus and it's hard to social distance. You're not concerned that'll put your health at risk? No, it will, but I want to party. That the level of how they're handling these two different types of social gatherings is completely inequitable and can be charged to a lot of things, particularly including that the students that are speaking up around uh, the situations that be are mostly black and brown students who are talking about their own situation and they're being impacted by this virus and the university's handling of it. So to see that criminalized is, it's troubling. If you heard Taylor, they're facing suspension. So it's not, oh, a little charge and you go home, but there's actually implications to the universities taking those actions. Darshni, what you got for me? I just kind of wanted to echo what you were saying. Like I, I know through working for housing and residence life that there are certain off-campus in-person events that we have to mandate, but then when it comes to organizing, like that, that is promptly shut down and there are more hoops that we have to jump through versus like organizing an on-campus like socialization event e even generally and I'm sure this is like being more compacted by COVID going forward it's very easy for people to come onto our campus and hang up these awful awful like abortion photos and stuff um, that are honestly like really scarring to walk around but anyway um, but it takes a lot more for student organizers to be able to do the same because we're promptly escorted away from not having proper regulations in place. And so I think just to echo kind of what everyone's saying, there is a huge double standard for student organizers versus regular campus activities that I think also go against social distancing um, and the guidelines set in place by the university. And those are, again, university mandated events. So thank you for that. Did any of our other media folks have questions, burning questions? Hi, um, Luke Stone, Cavalier Daily, uh, he, him. I just had a couple of questions. Uh, it's two questions, but not really directly related to each other. Um, the first one is how should universities plan for the spring semester? And kind of going on that vein, what protocols and procedures should be established before a school can uh, reopen in your eyes responsibly? Can I, can I speak to this? So in terms of schools reopening, I know that I have a bunch of friends who go to very small art schools and they get tested twice a week. Social distancing is enforced by manner of like scanning in. So when you scan in, you have to wipe down your hands and ID cards. No one else is allowed to come in with you into your dorm. Um, they have a very like strict testing procedure, which I think is just something, it's the bare minimum schools could be doing. And I'm not saying that that is all that I'm comfortable with. That's the bare minimum and none of our schools seem to be meeting that. Um, Sarandon, do you maybe wanna answer what you think you, it would take for UVA to reopen or, or what their plans should be for the spring? Um, yeah, so, and Luke, you could probably correct me if I'm wrong on this, but if you're asymptomatic at UVA, you only get tested every 60 days, which I think is, again, UVA has, a massive amount of wealth. You know, UVA could definitely be testing people every single week if they wanted to. 
Um, another thing I would really, really like to see from the university is hazard pay for all workers. That means contracted part-time student. Because, yeah, I'm just really afraid of, I think, double risk for the same amount of pay um, that someone mentioned earlier. I frankly would like to, if we're in the same predicament, um, I would frankly like to see no in-person classes as well. Also, I, I really think that UVA needs to have a tuition freeze as well. That is one of our demands for YDSA. And again, I think that it's ridiculous that we would be paying the same amount of tuition for online classes. So, Anyone else, any of the other students want to weigh in? Yeah, if I could just echo, I think one of the things with this conversation of like, like reopening and being on campus already, I think something the Dean asked us was like, besides not bringing students back to campus, what can we do? That's the, that's the whole question. Should you have brought students back to campus in the first place? And it's on them. It's not on students to answer that question of like, what, what do universities need to do? They, they have the resources, the power and the people to like make safety happen. Not, not, it shouldn't be on students to be keeping one another safe, you know, so. Yeah, um, just to echo and then answer that question, like at least with VCU specifically, we have residence halls that are not being used. If bringing students back who really felt like they needed to get out of their home environment, which I totally understand, or needed the subsidized housing, if that's the goal, I think that was completely reasonable and we could have done that. Like we have Cabinus, which is on MCV campus, that's completely empty not used, you know, fully functional. We have the Honors College, which was converted to, to isolation housing. And we could have very well helped a good number of low-income, at-risk students without bringing a full scale back to campus. You know, it wasn't advertised as a, okay, we're just gonna do this because it's the right thing to do to help students who need subsidized housing and also to get out of precarious home situations. No, no, no. They advertise that as, okay, well, come get this college experience, which they won't say explicitly means like partying and rushing and doing all this other irrelevant social activity stuff, but that's what it's coded as. And so for them to kind of like act like their hands are tied here, that's a lie, like flat out, because their argument for not giving hazard pay and their argument for not closing down are like, oh, well, you know, uh, these all these other corporations that we're knee deep in, in their pockets aren't going to really let us get away with not having a semester. So our solution to that is charging you more. That's not how that should work. So, you know, they don't have to keep investing or researching. There's a lot of non-essential things that are still being continued that they're like hailing as like essential services. We don't need administrators we don't need them getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars and certainly not a president being paid in the top 20, you know, university presidents at the time when people are trying to function off of 850 an hour with no hazard pay. And yeah, so for them to act like there's no choices, they had they just talked to students and community members like it would have been very obvious that there's better paths forward and more humane and, and more empathetic. Yes. So I think that that's a wonderful way for us to kind of wrap this space. If universities would listen to students, if universities would listen to their workers, they had done it in March, 
we wouldn't have be here today. And so what universities and colleges all over the state can do right now is begin to listen and act based on what they're hearing, not from their funders, not from their, you know, puppet string folks, but actually from the folks that hold the power, which are the students and the workers and the faculty. Uh, one thing that all universities can do, all their board of visitors and trustees can get together tomorrow and decide to take a halt on all their master plans, all future construction, all of these projects that are putting us 20 years into the future when the students of now cannot afford their tuition, they don't know, you know how they're gonna get to class safely or if they're bringing the virus back to their family. So it's time for the, these board of visitors and trustees to actually do their jobs, which means they need to come together and problem solve in a way that does not balance the budget on the backs of the students, as Ibi said earlier. So this is a call to action for all administrators of universities. This is for all boards of visitors, anyone who holds decision-making power at universities and colleges in Virginia. It is time for y'all to get together, to cancel master plans and reroute them, to make sure that the first thing that happens is that students are being taken care of. And if that means that we have to go all virtual for the spring, it's time to invest in truly virtual education that's equitable, that allows instructors to have support they need. And they can also give hazard pay and pay these workers. It's that easy. Dip into the rainy day funds, meet with your people, listen to the students so that we don't have to come back here in six more months. All right, folks, let's keep fighting the good fight. Let's get to the spring and with as many folks healthy and safe as we can. Uh, and good luck with all of your classes. It's Monday, so a fresh week of work. <laughs> Sending all of you love. Have a good week. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Talk to you later. Thank you so much to all of the students who so bravely shared their stories during the press conference and for consenting to having those stories shared today on our show. To echo that call to action I made on Monday, there are lives that are hanging in the balance while University Board of Visitors continue to keep academic institutions open during a pandemic. It is imperative that all universities take a good, hard look at these master plans and make some changes. For those of you who are not aware, university strategic master plans are those long-term plans that articulate a university's planned direction for whatever amount of time. So sometimes they'll have a 10-year master plan or a 20-year master plan, but they detail where they're planning to allocate their money and their resources to what projects and initiatives, the time frame that it should be done in, and to what end goal they're trying to reach. Many times, these plans are full of development, development of new academic facilities, new athletic facilities, new dorm buildings, parking lots, research institutions, increased investment into violent, gentrifying development projects, so on and so forth. The plans take into account tuition dollars, money from other sources, and it often reads like a big old business plan. What these master plans fail to center are the needs of its biggest customers, the students. 
There is absolutely no point in so-called public education institutions investing millions and millions and millions of dollars into the implementation of these master plans that are developing the future expansion of schools without so much as the consideration as to how they will support the students that are currently attending and paying for their institution today. Balancing the budget on the backs of students and their families at the expense of our communities and at the risk of losing countless lives to this deadly virus is nothing short of violence for profit. And there is absolutely no reason that these universities, who have ample resources at their disposal, including top-notch medical and public health research institutions, can't come up with a safe plan for instruction that doesn't endanger the lives of everyone who comes into contact with the university. We shouldn't wait until someone's life is lost to the virus to take it seriously. It is time to act now. We must look to the nations who have been able to successfully contain this virus for benchmarks on when it is safe to return to face-to-face -face instruction. And until these institutions are willing to truly invest in the public health of their communities, we will continue to face this devastating crisis and its impacts will only get more severe. I don't say this to stoke fear into your heart but to bring us back to reality. Students and their families are scared. Community members who live near campus are scared. And frankly, the way that things are going on these campuses and the stories that I'm hearing daily from my own students have me scared about what is to come. One thing is for certain though, these universities and institutions are absolutely to blame for all of this confusion and for the violence that they are inflicting on all of us. Thank you for listening to Race Capital today. Catch us next week, same time, 10 a.m., right here on WRAR. And catch up on our latest episodes on SoundCloud. Visit our website, racecapital.com, and check out more of our content as we continue to cover stories right here in the fallen capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia. Peace.